don't focus on the data you have now. Focus on what you want the AI to do, what you want to achieve, and then see whether you have the right data or not, and then clean it or clean it or bring it. Hi, and welcome to Credit Shift. My name is Paul Sweeney. I'm the Chief Strategy Officer at Webio. This podcast will be about how to embrace the digital future of credit and collections and all things AI and technology. Join us for the conversations that matter around credit and collections. Welcome to this uh, fifth installation of the Credit Shift podcast. My name is Dan Blagojevic, Director of Decision Sciences at Optima Partners. Uh, As ever, I'm joined today with my co-host, Paul Sweeney, co-founder and CSO at Webio. And I'm also delighted to welcome our guest today, Javier Campos, Chief Information Officer at Fenestra. An accomplished uh, CIO and AI strategist, uh, Javier has dedicated his career to harnessing the power of AI for business growth and for digital transformation. Um, His previous roles include exact level technology positions at Experian Data Labs, Kantar and Group M. Um, He was also on uh, several public-private forums and uh, UK-wide committees on artificial intelligence. And to top it all off, Javier has published books on AI strategy in business. Um, Javier, it's a really great pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you, Dan. Uh, That's a very kind and uh, good introduction, by the way. I might steal it for the future. Uh, Thank you. So... uh, we want to, to carry on the theme of, of that we've been discussing over the past uh, several podcasts, which is uh, around the, the adoption of artificial intelligence. And w- one of the themes that we've often discussed is um, some of the barriers to, to uh, adoption of AI. They're not always technical, are they, Javier? What, what's, what's, uh, what's your view on what, what stops organizations and businesses adopting AI? I mean, I have to say, as as you mentioned, I was in a um, it was a, a private public uh, group working group with the organized by the FCA and the Bank of England on how to accelerate AI on, in the financial services industry. So what we did in the group before we start, we took a survey. We sent a survey to all financial institutions across the the UK, uh, across, uh, and then what we saw, uh, which is not surprisingly, that even the biggest institutions with the bigger budgets, they were actually, the, everybody was struggling. There were some more successful and some, some not. Um, when we then, which we actually uh, talk a lot about on the, we published a report, we, we took two years to uh, a, understand what was the situation and we talked to all these different uh, parties. Um, and I think it, it was clear to, uh, to your point and uh, that, you know, that there is a problem. The AI has a lot of potential and, and actually is, so the potential is accelerating. So there is a, a gap between what is possible versus what is actually being in production. And this gap is accelerating the, the, the size of the gap because AI has, especially in the last two years, and I've been a practitioner for many years from the very early models, uh, very early, uh, quite a few years ago. Uh, but in the, uh, I think that gap is currently accelerated. And the reason is because there are quite a lot of things that need to happen that they nothing to do technically that in many cases are not happening. And we see many projects uh, failing because they don't cover the um, this one. And and just to, to your point, so, uh, you know, as, as I said on, on my book, um, which is quite an ambitious uh, book because I try to talk about all these barriers, 
for effectively, there are quite a lot of them that there's nothing to do with uh, technical. So even if you have the best model ever and the amazing data, unless you cover all these things within your organization, you, you, the project will probably will, will fail. So to, to that end, is there a way of almost uh, framing a, uh, uh, some form of a rule book or a recipe book on, for the journey to maturity? How, how, how can businesses assess not just the gaps and, okay, the, these are the barriers, but to assess, say, I'm doing this, therefore I'm at stage one, I'm doing that, therefore I'm at stage two. Okay, what's, uh, is there a, a mechanism? A very good question. And, and that's probably the first part of this journey, which again, some companies, uh, you know, typically what's happening now, AI is in the press every day. Today, you probably, I don't know if you've seen, uh, a number of uh, companies have uh, released, that's happened last night. So today, Twitter fear is quite buzzing because of the latest uh, video, text-to-video models, which by the way, they're getting very scary. So you can actually type, I want a video of a cat doing whatever, and it will produce something which is getting quite, you know, that uh, you, you very soon we're not going to be able to distinguish. So I think that's so. What happens is when you have these all these headlines, you know, of course the boards and the senior people are reading these things and saying, "Oh my gosh, we have this," and they go to clients and said, "I want you to do that." And I think the first the, so the first challenge for any company is to do a maturity assessment. You know, saying. What are all the things I need to implement AI? And this one starts getting, and that's what I spent quite a few chapters in the book talking about the concept of maturity, saying to implement AI, of course, you're going to need an infrastructure, you're going to need, um, and you're going to need data as well in a good place, but also you're going to need quite a lot of other things that sometimes people don't forget, uh, forget, sorry, which is, for example, um, the governance, how to, how things use or approach AI. And I think uh, the, the first thing for any company is saying, hey, what I am today, so if I have the, and, and I call something about pillars, so I define five pillars, um, I, I go to these five pillars and ana I analyze, when I was writing the book, all the AI roadmap for all the top uh, countries and companies in the world. So the UK, the US, China, Germany, they all, uh, Canada, they all have what is called a national AI roadmaps. Well, not, in, uh, not surprisingly, they all have similar themes. You need to do these five pillars, which is education, make sure that people have the data, make sure people know how to do it, make sure people have governance. So I think for me, the first uh, point to a company is what are you in the, you know, make sure you, before you do anything, analyze where you are. So I am in these pillars. So for example, how much do you have data scientists? How good is your data? How your business is structured uh, and so on. So you, you do a check. Then this is a crucial step. What do you want to do? What the CEO wants to do? Oh, I want to do AI everywhere. Well, and then analyze the gap uh, and then be very realistic saying how quickly we can move because this is another challenge that companies sometimes fail saying that the CEO wants everything on AI tomorrow. And they might not even have a uh, good data or data strategy or master data or the data is not clean. So that thing will fail more likely than not. So it's very important to understand what is the assessment where I am now, what do I want to be, and in what time frame. Then calculate saying this is what it needs to happen in terms of either funding or more importantly, which is again another thing that companies sometimes over over they have a bit of oversight. What other uh, resources or what other projects I need to stop or divert because resources are finite and you can't do everything. And getting 
you know, sometimes it's helpful to get a third party, like a consultancy, which can really help that journey, but you need to do it in a way where you really match with your internal activity. That's interesting what you said, having to to stop something in order to to prioritize uh, development of AI. Paul, is that something that you, I mean, obviously you work just yeah. to have your points as, as on, on providing that kind of service. Well, just making a couple of notes there as you're going in, I think um, that point about where and how you outsource is kind of interesting. Yeah, I think it's still a bit, I'm just looking at the the kind of parallels between outsourcing of any type, outsourcing kind of data intensive projects, then outsourcing AI. And the similar patterns are there for any kind of new technology, any kind of big new change that has to happen in a company. So a lot of this reminds me of cloud. Um, but I think in, in terms of our own experience at working with companies, the um, it's always the data, right? It's always trying to get data, trying to get the data exported in the right way, trying to get the process of importing organized and signed off, etc. And I think once once you've got access to the data and it's brought in in the right way, people want to automate as much as possible. And they want as, as little as little of, of their own people involved in it as possible. Um, because as you're saying, just getting access to the right IT staff and development staff, getting access to the data scientists, getting everyone up to, up to the, the mark on it, it's just a lot of work. Is, is there an element of, you know, and I'll take an analogy from, from the COVID periods, quotes, we will we'll be led by the science, we'll follow the science as if it's some uh, 100% known fact. But actually, even, even in science, there are design choices to be made. And with the same data set, we can train models that will give very, very different answers. Is there a misconception then that oh, the data will do the talking? And is there some education there actually that, that we need to do that actually there's a design, a very important design element that, that needs to happen here? Is, is that a part of, a part of the puzzle? Well, if, if you ask me, uh, absolutely. And I was, uh, I would say, lucky or lucky enough to, to work during COVID, uh, the, my data lab, there's, this is public, people can, can check. We did actually a project for the NHS and it was very successful because we managed to come up uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. There was a lot of, uh, this is a good story about data. And this is also going to make my point about what companies should think. And I, I don't think I mentioned this. I can't remember in the book or not, but it, the point is, I do mention the point, of course. So the example is we did the, um, you know, when the first COVID happened, a big, you know, everything was a big emergency and they were all coming this, and you, I don't know if you remember the famous uh, model from, I think it was Imperial College in London saying, you know, this is going to be a disaster, it's going to happen this, that, that. So and, then, and then the model, quietly on, they, they actually stand spending a lot of things. And this is the history of our data. Now we know that a lot of these models were wrong, but actually, and, and again, it's, a, well, it's, nothing, it's not a thing that you bloat, but we did a model that we actually got very, very accurate. And the reason why is it was a design decision. So the problem is at the beginning, if you look at the, um, the mathematical models for how any disease spread, including COVID or pretty much anything, is fairly simple. It's, have, you know, it's, it's based on this concept of first equation, uh, differential equations. So the mathematics are very simple. Any machine learning can do much, much better, but it's a very simple process. You, you, know, you have any disease, have a, how quickly they, they sort of get a, a, you can get it for, to another people, the famous R0, if you remember. 
some diseases are more contagious than others. Um, and then you either infect it, depending on how quick, as you get in contact with other people and the people either recover or they die. It's a brutal model, but it's a very sim relatively simple model to do mathematically. So these models, they were actually, okay, what was the problem? The problem is they, the, the key, the infected, the key of the model was taking how many people are infected. How do you know if people are infected? That's what the, the trick here is, depending on how you test. And the testing, and this is what a bit subtly, which most countries got it very wrong. The testing was, what was the problem with the testing is not that you didn't test all the population, which actually that could have been okay. But the problem is most government, due to panic and politics, they were changing the criteria pretty much every two or three days. Today, we're going to test all uh, essential workers. Tomorrow, oh no, we also have to test the police now, or which before they were, no, or we're going to talk. And the problem is because they kept changing who they were testing, the, the, the infectious rate was changing all the time. And what happened is when you change how you do something, that metric became useless. I have to say, Effectively. it's yeah, embarrassing. Uh, money. So a lot of these models from this, which I'm, I'm shocked how these people we either miss that or not miss that. So when you have a metric that you, if you kept the same criteria, it doesn't matter if you don't test anyone because the model will be a good proxy a good proxy and the model will work. But if you get messing around, the model is a mess and that's what happened. So we realized that very quickly. So our model completely ignored the numbers from the NHS and we found two proxies that they were really, really good uh, indication of how the disease was doing. One uh, calls to uh, the 1-1 one -one number and then the mobility uh, data that Google had there. So using those two models and doing a Bayesian sort of inference with priors and so on, we could, we were actually, we predicted a spot on every single thing that happened. And yeah, so I think the, the key, sorry, uh, the, the last thing, so the key on the data learnings is don't focus, and this is companies do that, on the data you have now, focus on the, what you need, what is the, what you need to fix, what you want the AI to do, what you want to achieve, and then see whether you have the right data or not, and then clean it, not clean it, or bring it. But the data might or might not be the right one, which in this case, it was the wrong one. And, and, and in the, that, that notion of, I mean, it, it feels like sometimes you can stumble on a data source or and it, it proves to be really, really helpful. But in the absence of stumbling on data, yeah, how, how, do we, how do businesses know where that missing data might come from? Uh, any, any, any ideas on yeah, where, where there's exogenous factors where, where businesses should be looking for that. I think for me, I have, uh, you know, I, I talk about a data framework, which is a structured way to uncover value. But for me, I always say, really, really obsess about the business value. You know, the data is, uh, is something secondary, which, you know, I, I know, and again, I'm going to be a bit controversial here, so we can, uh, we can have a bit of discussion. You know, some people are saying, no, no, what, the first thing you have to do is absolutely forget about AI, do spend a lot of money cleaning your data, just in general. So for me, I would say, well, I wouldn't do that. Why? Because not all data has value. And you can spend a lot of money on doing things you might or might not need. It's much better to say, you know, once you understand how AI works, what do what is, you know, decentralizing human decisions, what are the things you can add the moment they work like that and you can add value. Once you know what you want to do, which is the, the point is, 
understanding uh, the what, the business value. You know, what do you can do for your customers that you don't do today? What, once you know that, go there, see what data you have, and then you might need to go and explore uh, other. Um, so, for example, you might look at uh, open data. You know, I talk about it in the book. You might get a third-party vendor. You might change your processes. You, you start collecting other data. But the, the, but it should be that way. It's start from the business. You know, if I do this in business value, so if I am able to help my customer in this way, or I can reach my customer one week before he's about to churn, you know, all these business, then you quantify how much value will be for me and then worry about, okay, do I have the data? Is the data good? And then if you have the data, but the data is not good, that's when you spend money and say, now I'm going to clean it, I'm going to do master data, but now I have a very clear objective with a clear value and, and then you do it like that. So Paul, I mean, a lot of work that you do in conversational AI, that relies on, on real-time access to relevant and appropriate data. How easy or difficult is that when you're trying to talk to a customer who's uh, maybe in a, a financially distressed situation? It's really interesting. Um, uh, it goes back to the question there, uh, actually, the, the framing of the original question, which is how do you frame your research? Like how do you frame what data you're looking for or should be looking for in the first place? And so this is actually a subtle enough point because when you're looking at conversations that are happening with customers today, you've got the data, like this is what they're talking about. These are their topics. These are the things they're looking to do. So that's kind of analyzable. And if you can automate that or understand that better, there's immediate, like, immediate benefit, right? You know what the value is going to be at the end of that. However, I think that there's another kind of deeper point here, which is people will use whatever they think works and they will alter the behavior based on what they think the capabilities of that system are. So you'll adapt your behavior to what you're used to, right? So like when you look at, just to give you another example, most people use three search words when they go to Google. They go, you know, Nike sneakers size 10, like, and they, they'll, they'll do a search and Google figures out, oh, they're looking for Nike sneakers, probably around them, probably frequent, maybe they'll, and they make all these other assumptions about what you want to do. When you move to chat GPT, it's asking you to do another interface. It's asking you to build a prompt and build um, a kind of a different way of interacting with the system. It's a whole different metaphor. And if you as a customer don't know the difference between uh, Google and the capabilities of chat GPT, then you don't alter your behavior and you don't get the value, right? Which is kind of a long way of saying that what works today may, may not work tomorrow. And things that happen outside of your platform can impact on how people end up using what you have today. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that that's like model drift. It's like behavior drift from, from the user. And that will change the data that you're able to get. Um, because like, it's like an affordance. The affordance is widening and widening. And people are learning uh, that they can do more and more. And that's going to change an awful lot of behavior going forward, I think. I mean, that, that's really interesting because actually it's, be, I mean, behaviors generate data. So today's behaviors will generate training data of tomorrow. Just thinking out loud here, does, is there a, a bit of a virtuous loop or a vicious loop here, whichever way one wants to put it, that we, that, that's the way that we are applying AI today. And as you say, is, is 
stimulating certain types of behavior, that's actually going to drive the design of artificial intelligence engines in the future. And we might get stuck in a, in a, in a loop which might treat certain groups suboptimally. I, I think it'll, I think that they'll change. Um, like, I, I think there's almost, the, you know, the, the, the phrase requisite variety and requisite randomness, uh, you need to like have in your whole approach and uh, an ability to kind of not focus on just optimizing, optimizing, optimizing. You, you have to get new data in, experiment with new things, widen windows, narrow windows. Like that's all a part of adapting to what's happening in the world. I think if you just optimize, 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 I think then then you end up down at the the, the narrow end down there, down the spiral. Um, and Javier, so one of the things just on on this kind of adjacency of data. We might find that some data that's, that we, we quote stumble upon is, is useful, but there might be ethical questions around using that data. Um, have you, yeah, have you encountered situations where you've been asked to, to, um, to develop a strategy to that? And what would, what would your advice be? Is, is it is, this is a very complicated area and also quite passionate, uh, passionate. I, I was, um, I actually, we, we, when I was in Experian, we, um, um, release some uh, papers. Uh, we actually did a patent as well on how to do that. Um, and the complexity. So I think at, at the underlying, the underlying issue with this, and this is sometimes again, sometimes company don't really uh, stop to think about these things. Where you know, if you look at any model in terms of the precision of performance, that is quite an absolute metric. So, for example, if you want to say, I want to predict, let's say, the classical example in credit risk, I want to know if that person is going to default or not. You can quantify mathematically, you know, with a really uh, absolute way, what is that uh, probability. You can do it better or worse, depending on the model, depending on your data. But uh, when it comes to ethics and fairness in particular, uh, that's not the case. You know, there is fairness and ethics is subjective. This is why it's very, very, very important. So, which means it depends on your views on the world. When you have a system, let's say you have whatever system, and again, it might not even have to have AI or not. This applies to any, which is the other thing that people, many, when, when talking about these debates, you know, sometimes you think, oh, AI is, no, no, AI, of course AI have this in, but we have these problems today. You know, every time you go to a bank, every time you are assessed by a lot of the system and a lot of the system have an in inbuilt ethical views, which might or might not be explicit, but they are behaving based on historical data, based on what the views of the band, how to uh, consider. Like, for example, when you, you know. So I think for me, the very important thing is companies have to have a clear understanding what is ethics, you know, what is the ethical they want to be there. Of course, there is a legal thing, which does not even in, even in debate. If things are you know, not compliance. You have to, uh, of course, comply with all the uh, local laws, which varies a lot, by the way. I have many experiences, things that are okay, you know, in Latin America, uh, the, you know, in the Europe, you could actually get into a lot of trouble and or ICA. So you, you have the same thing, which so I think, so the main point here, ethic is something subjective and something that companies have to spend saying, what do I want to be in terms of what that means for me to be a good company? Uh, because depending on what you pick, then your models will behave one way or the other. And, and that is not happening now. What is happening is 
people do things the way they always done, then of, of course uh, things happen, and then people uh, um, complain. But you know, the, the other thing, for example, when you look at the ethics, and let's say, for example, fairness, fairness, the metrics, there are many type of metrics. They actually literally hundreds. They can all be grouped about 10, 12 main groups. Uh, but but roughly, you have to make a call at some point. What, what do you think is fair for you? Which what you think is fair for you might be different for Paul and for me. Uh, and the, the big thing is within a society. So for example, we probably shouldn't uh, disagree too much, but between societies, the disagreement can be because the values are different. You know, the classical example on this ethical, you know, in ethics, there is a, the classical trolley problem, which I, I don't know if you're familiar, but for the people listening, is effectively you get a trolley that is, you know, coming down and someone has to make a decision. If you don't do anything, the trolley is going to run over five people, but if you change it, it will only kill one. I mean, there are many variations. So, for example, in, in AI, there is a similar problem, which is a uh, self-driving car is driving all of a sudden it's going to a situation when it needs to decide whatever happened one or two people is going to die so imagine it's going really that there's a problem with the brakes and you are in, you cannot do anything you have you either run over uh, elderly people or a baby so for example this one when you put that problem into the into here into the west the uk us europe and said what the the what the machine should do Pretty much 90, 99% of the people will say, well, run over the elderly people because it's at the end of the life, you know, da, da, da. When you do the same thing in, in uh, Asia, it's actually the opposite because they have such a big respect for the elderly. Uh, so effectively, the same machine, when you program it, uh, you know, the, the, this is I'm talking about in the future, when they have uh, full autonomy, uh, level five, and those decisions will have to be. I mean, they, it gets really complicated. But anyway, going back to your question, I think companies have to be thinking about what is ethics for them and then establish some guidelines and then make sure that all your models behave to what you think is useful. But it does a subjective thing. You know, sometimes this is not, there is no the right answer is whatever you want to, to, to be. I, I think there's an interesting um, development in the UK with the customer duty of care um, because embedded in that is an idea of fairness and value and what's actually value being delivered and does that customer understand value H have you any experience of how companies are thinking about that like how are they how are they reflecting on that legislation they do but even that legislation because one of the challenges with metrics you, you know as i said the values are different uh, there is there so for example the metrics are also different depending on what value system you do. And the other thing is, which is quite fascinating, there is a theory you cannot meet all of them at the same time. So you need to choose which value it is and then there. So I think in, in that legislation and in others, um, it is quite a difficult uh, conversation. And, and I spent, uh, when I was in the in the forum and also in, in other forums with the FCA, which is the one that really worry about these things. And, and very quickly, um, it's very difficult. I mean, the FCA as a regulator is a principle base. You know, there are two types of regulation. You either tell what you should like be good and then don't tell you how to do it. And then you, you do whatever you do. And then I tell you whether you're good or not. And then I'll find you, which is with a principle base or rule base saying, do this, 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 and this. So rule base is easier to follow, but companies, it's easy to, to abuse as well because you just play the game and, you know, the KPS and so on. 
principle is easier to regulate, but also uh, more difficult to, to comply. So here, again, on the, which is, a, is, is going back to say, no, you need to be care. I mean, there is many examples I could, I could put that have been involved to, some of them I can't even mention, but, you know, it, it gets really complicated saying what is, you know, for let's say well, one thing, which is imagine uh, this is, uh, um, this is something incredible risk which banks today struggle today. And, and you can ask people, well, it's a difficult one because they won't tell you officially. But let's say, for example, you have a person which is in the really, really edge of the credit risk limit saying, do I, you know, you're a big bank, do I give this person a credit or not? You say, it's going to default. And then you have a duty to of care saying, look, if now the, the challenge there is, okay, think, think about the bigger picture. That person really needs the money. So hence is, I'm going to the big bank, I need the money. If you decline it, What's going to happen is that probably you're going to send him a path, which this is their studies and this happens of, uh, you know, because he needs the money. Yes, you're not going to give it like a good credit because you're a big bank. You, he, you actually you pretty much uh, throw into a, um, a route of going to a payday. Well, now that less, you know, in the days, pay the loan or, or doing, take, getting the credit in other risks, which is much harming for the consumer. But you, the, the, the problem here is if you look at the system, the system is now, uh, if you ask me, it's not as a society. And, and it's a difficult one, by the way. I'm not saying banks, you know, and I work with them, and I'm, I'm sure Dan will tell you, they do actually, you know, I haven't met any, any well, <laughs> haven't met uh, in the UK, uh, I will say, uh, in, other, in other countries happen, but they really try to be compliant. They, they, they have a duty, okay, whatever. But it gets very complicated. And in this case, he's saying, you know, yeah, fine, you are okay, but as a society, that person you just send in, you know, by declining if he was borderline, you just send him to a spiral of debt, which is all there are many studies, which means this person is gonna get into a lot of trouble. And so that type of things, you know, to your point here, is a is a very difficult and the reason why it's so challenging to to legislate and to regulate is because it depends a lot. You can't really force people. The principle base gets uh, really complicated. I mean, what what you're describing there, Javier, is really there's there's fair, fairness of a decision versus fairness of a model that's driving a decision. Um, sometimes it's easy to to decouple those two, but in others, especially with today's uh, use of uh, more automated artificial intelligence, that's, that's harder to do, to separate out the, the model from a decision itself because of the level of automation. Um, what kind of yeah, checks and balances or controls do you think we need to put in to, to ensure the fairness of an outcome, maybe not necessarily the model itself, because a model, a model is only as good as, as the data design that, that's, that's, that's been used to, to train it, but we can influence the decision that's, that's based off the back of that model. Um, so I think <clears throat> there are two things. Uh, one, the you know the organizations have to establish governance, and this is one of the pillars. You know when you when I when remember talking about the framework to to implement AI. So you need to make sure people are comfortable and they understand how to use it and when to use it. So there is a pillar how to expand AI within the organization. One of the pillars is the governance. How do you implement successful AI? But then how do you governance and there are quite a few uh, recommendations. So the first one is there has to be someone in the organization responsible for ensuring the approach 
taking to AI, to fairness, to, to your point, to the decisions, to who, when to involve a human in the loop, when not to, there needs to be someone that is looking at these things with the right knowledge. You know, the one thing, for example, uh, especially in a small organization as they grow, you can decentralize doing AI, but if you have their own things completely anonymous, no one is going to be thinking about these things. You need, you know, like a chief AI officer or someone who says, this is the direction for the company and these are the things they should, uh, they should be doing. And um, so for me, the, the best practice is you need to uh, at least think how you, you want to do that, those things, and, but in a, in a sort of guideline side of things. I don't say you have to centralize everything because that might not work, especially for some organization, but what you, what you do centralize is, and this is the recommendation, you know, I, I recommend people to read the, the document output of the, it's called AIPP, you know, the AI Private Public Forum. It was a two-year document on how to do AI in financial services or how to accelerate. And one of the recommendations here in the governance is, look, you need to do this thing, you can do it here, 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 but they do recommend there needs to be someone who is having a guidelines across the, to, to dance point to say how we're going to do these things, you know, and, and that's, that's the, the important thing because especially as you go, uh, and then the other thing is, let's not forget there is a new uh, uh, regulation, depending whether you, if you, if you, uh, for example, if any, which many companies in the UK also operate in Europe, there is now a EU AI regulation, which for some um, use cases, you need to do extra steps. So again, you need to know what to do it, which they regulate these things as well. An interesting point there then is, I mean, we, we talk a lot about vulnerable customers and, and due to, to, to Paul, to your point, right, consumer duty uh, regulation. And in order to identify vulnerable customers or vulnerability, let's say, because it is a transient state, we need to ask certain questions. We need access to certain types of data. Uh, but that, that might contradict or conflict with the notion of uh, customer privacy and, and our, you know, legitimate use of data. How, how do we how do we square that circle? Because it, it, it's, sometimes it's it's perceived that just asking for certain types of data is going to be used in a malicious way, which most often is not the case. Um, how, how do we how do we square that? This circle? is a, absolutely a spot on question. It's a very hard one, and again, I spend quite a lot of time. Uh, I think for me, this is one of the cases where AI and technology is going to give us the answer. You know, when you think about the privacy, they call uh, pet privacy enhancing techniques. There's a lot of things going on. Um, and now, you know, uh, I've gone from financial services to marketing. So my company now, we think about this uh, with the disappearance of the cookie. Uh, we think in ways where we can sort of target consumer based on your interest, but not in your person. So I want, which, in, which now with cookies, it doesn't happen. Now is link done to what you consumer behavior, which is but in many cases, I want to. So, my, so that effectively, that's, that's a point. So, for example, let's say on fairness, if you want to, let's say, and, and we have actually a few projects with uh, large banks, they ask us, I want to know if my product, for example, are uh, discriminating the LBGT plus community. It's a very good thing to know, but actually, it is today is very, very, very hard because you don't know who is or who isn't. So, I don't know to Dan's point, I said, I don't know if you are not, I'm not, I don't know if I'm discriminating you or not. I might, by the way, be doing because I might be P 
picking on proxies, which my model might be saying is well, the classical one, and some of you, is postcode. So maybe not for that community, but for example, for some minorities, postcode, uh, especially in other countries, like for example, in France or Spain, it is very scary. Postcodes, especially in France, is you tell me your postcode, I tell you your country, ethnicity because they people for uh, when they did the immigration, which is creating now a lot of problems, by the way, as you can understand in Spain, here is a bit less, but you can also sum. So for example, if my model is saying, look, I don't, I don't discriminate, but my model is using the postcode, guess what? That's going to happen. And, and the, the, the other thing is uh, because the machine is picking, um, you know, if you live in a postcode where people have uh, default, but is also associated to that minority that you might be discriminated. So in that case, for example, what Dan was saying is that data is not available. Like we don't know. And but so so anyway, so the future, and this is what um this new technique and privacy, um, again, there's a lot of very interesting things, is you can you might be able to extract uh, some of this uh, sig signal, meaning I might be able to know some of the groups without knowing who you are. And I'd use that data to, to the, the, as Dan said, many banks don't, of course they don't, because as a minimum, if somebody finds out, they're going to be fine. But actually people are, you know, contrary to sometimes the public, you know, people working in bank, most of the people are really well-meaning and they want to do the best. Is is a an unintended consequences of how the system is set up, the regulations there. So here, for me, the the way at the moment is is impossible. Like for example, so if you look at the regulation now, is telling you two contradictory things. The FCA would tell you, you know, duty of care, don't discriminate, da da da, but 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 but, and then it says that in the same breath there is another law, which is the the data law, I think twenty ten or whatever the act saying you cannot collect this data. The following boom, boom, religion is so. If you have a bank, I say, hold on, you're gonna beat me up if I discriminate people based on LGBT, but you don't let me access the data. So I, I don't know if I'm so. If someone comes, which is sometimes they happen, these charities come, they do some sort of uh, sometimes not very scientifically, but it's, it's a point. They do some sort of survey and they say, well, all the people in my community cannot get a credit card, and then the, the whole thing is there. But but there is you, you say, well, if you look at the bank he cannot access the data. So how, you know, they cannot remind and you cannot ask that question. So I don't think the answer is to get more data, by the way. What I'm saying is the new techniques might allow somebody in the middle, which is you get these profiles of behaviors or things you want to test, but you don't know exactly. I don't know it's done. I know some aspects that are either interesting for the, um, for the project. So I think... In this particular case, I'm very optimistic and a techno-optimistic. Some people might not be. On the new privacy techniques, we allow like a win-win. Uh, it's, a, it's a challenging thing. It's the same with synthetic data. I mean, if you look at what I was mentioning at the beginning of the podcast, the, the way the machines can now generate data, that's actually quite good because you can use the same technique, which is to generate this data, which again, uh, and in an in a anonymized way. Imagine having a virtual version of you, which is not you, so you are protected probably, but then I can use that data to send you the right ad to when you go to a bank, make sure you're not discriminated or make sure you get access to the to the right credit. Paul, I mean, in, in the conversational AI space, how limiting is that? What what you can and can't legitimately ask? And, and actually, is there a risk of conversational AI asking those inadvertent questions? Yeah, there is. Um, so... 
the term, I think, is making a disclosure or an invitation to a disclosure. And if you are offering someone a space whereby they can step forward and disclose that they are going through vulnerability at the moment through health or financial or or otherwise, then you have also on the other side of that a responsibility to be able to handle it. So if somebody says, if you say to someone, hey, are you in danger right now? And they say, yes, I am in physical danger right now in my current situation. And you go, oops, sorry for that. And you put down the phone. Like that's that's an invitation to disclose. And then you've a very bad outcome or a very bad action on the other side of it. So I, I think that you've got to be really careful about um, what you're asking, what you're asking people to disclose, and then have a view on the state that happens, like if someone reveals what happens next, what happens next, what happens next. And can you actually um, not just kind of do the sequence of actions, the rule-based things you should do, but the principles-based approach you're saying there about um, what are you guiding, like where are you guiding towards, what are your guiding principles about it. And normally, I think you're just trying to get them to the right person most of the time. Um, like the right trained personnel, the person who's trained to deal with that particular set of circumstances or is connected to the right information that can help that person. So it's 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 a really, I think they call it, we call it like the most challenging customer service in the world because the kind of things you come up against are, are really quite uh, quite challenging. That's interesting. I mean, a lot of the work that, 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 that we do is, is around yeah, generalizability of decisions based on, on, on models and actually the, the ability of certain individuals to, or certain groups to generate certain data just isn't there. So to take an example, people who are not, uh, who, who just consume cash, they don't like using plastic or they don't have access to, 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 um, to the electronic payments means that they just don't have that ability to generate the insights and the data for somebody like an Experian to, to, to be able to measure quantify their risk and therefore give them financial products. So what I'm trying to say is that missingness of data in itself is, is data, that is information. And how, I guess, yeah, how, how do we ensure that people of that kind aren't being left behind, that they get the service that they need? Uh, for me, I'm a great believer in the, in the sort of synthetic data. So I, you know, over... Um, especially when, when I was in Expedia and I have the opportunity to see different data set in different countries depending on the regulation. And actually, uh, in some cases, the data could be used for a good job. Um, so I've seen examples where the regulation, to your point, prevented people to do, um, uh, to do things which would be helpful. Like, for example, and, and actually the, in the UK, we have another example during during COVID in terms of the location base. So again, you know, if you think about it, we have the technology uh, to create, um, and there was an app to where, you know, if you've been infected or not, you can you can actually pinpoint um, who was close. And um, yeah, so I think the data is available. It was used in other countries in a successful way where they didn't have the regulation here because of the regulation prevented to use the data. So I think for, you know, going back to, to your point, I do, I'm a great believer in using this synthetic data as a way forward to fill some of those gaps in a, in a way that helps 
organizations uh, worry about clients because, you know, again, if you go back to, to financial services, uh, most people don't realize, but across the world, and even in the UK, by the way, very few people have access to credit, actually. Uh, I think it's um, the last, you know, there are 8 billion people in the planet. Uh, I don't think not even two you know, which is uh, uh, have normal access, which are living in a sort of more advanced countries. Many people don't have access to, and, and, and it's been shown that, you know, access to credit is good for the economy in the right way, by the way. So I think when you start, there is a massive data gap. How are you going to fill that gap? You know, uh, in some countries, and, and, and I was very close in the in Experian, we have this uh, network of labs. Uh, they were about my, my lab, Cover EMEA. So I, I, I look and see in Africa, for example, the reason why most people don't have credit is as simple as people think, oh, hey, it's not even credit history, it's just identity. I, I cannot know who you are. Forget about whether I have. So these type of things, you know. So when you come here to the, even in the UK, so forget about Africa, these countries, they are still, uh, the last time I checked, I think they were about one to 1. 1.5 million and bank uh, people in the UK means they don't have a bank account, means they don't have fax. That's a very persistent number. It's it's not actually, it's not decreasing. Still the same. So when I, I did a big thing a couple of years ago, and, and it, so 1.5 million is not just, a, I mean, that's actually quite a big number. And when you think about the consequences of that, it's terrible because they are in a, uh, these people, you know, if you don't have a bank account, you cannot, pretty much do anything. You cannot rent, you cannot. So even if you give them money, these people, they are st uh, stuck in this loop of not being able to do. Uh, some people, by the way, are okay because they are sort of elderly people that they, but actually quite a lot of people are not okay and they are in this loop. Um, so going back to your point, there's no data. They are, I think, and, and I, I've seen, again, uh, uh, I've seen some companies doing very good uh, strides trying to fill these gaps. Um, and technology, um, for me, joining technology and uh, the current one and the, the new one with the synthetic data and the privacy techniques can, uh, I, again, I'm optimistic uh, to try and help, but it's, it's a big problem. And as you know, it's, it's not going away. On the contrary, it might be even um, getting worse. I, I really like the example that Uber had um, uh, where they, they, they found a lot of their drivers were unbanked and they gave their drivers access to a deposit account themselves. They created a deposit account and then they were able to use that deposit account to do the next thing, like pay the rent on direct debit. And it it was a really nice example of kind of embedded services joining together to serve an underserved community. And I, I think that that's one route. Um, like I'm just thinking of all the pay slip companies that the... the you know, companies pay their employees through systems and then through that payment process, you can also enable other services. Um, I'm seeing that a lot. I'm seeing more and more of that and seeing a lot of specific services for um, people who come to the UK from jurisdictions where they can't transfer their bank account. So they have to, again, have another service to open a bank account. There's lots of little niche services that are addressable now because the technology is embeddable. Um, I, I'm kind of, I, I think there's something interesting happening there. I mean, that's, that's a great point. Uh, ability to stitch those desperate 
data sources together is most likely going to be a challenge. Uh, well, what, one of the things that's, that was quite interesting is, and it was in, in the press as well, is uh, that I think it was a study between Imperial College and one of the UK's leading supermarkets. Uh, they were able to identify from shopping basket data lead indicators of ovarian cancer up to three years before the cancer diagnosis was was actually made. Um, and it goes to show that the power of adjacent data. Now, this this was a reasonably small study, uh, but it was scientifically re- and peer-reviewed and statistical significance was, was there to be seen. But actually what operationalizing or act, acting on insight like that is probably going to be a big challenge. Well, that, that goes to your point about... Uh previously but is it uh, last week Barclays um, bought Tesco Bank uh, during the week yes yes that was um, and as a part of that announcement those three things they mentioned um, one was they mentioned that they were going to uh, have the ability to target unsecured loans in a more efficient manner Uh, second was that they were going to be able to offer deposit accounts in a more efficient manner and third, they were going to use the club card data across the Barclay card organization, not just within the Tesco uh, Tesco bank. And I think that goes like that neatly ties up some of the points that we've just been just been talking about the power of adjacent data there, obviously bringing even more value than um, than maybe other things that you would have suspected. I mean, we we did. Uh... And when I was, as, as that knows, when I was in a, when I experienced, we did a lot of research projects with transactional data, both from banks, but other from uh, shopping trolleys. Uh, with uh, we did with also a big supermarket in the UK, a, a name, um, and is uh, I think the, the the two messages is the data tells you an extraordinary amount of insights, but it's also really. Um, and I can have actually a, a, a bit more, uh, I would say, scary examples uh, where you might be able to to predict that. But in terms of uh, productionizing this, you uh, hit so many uh, challenges, which at the moment I would say is impossible between regulatory. Uh, you know, for example, I, I could give you some examples and I, and I did some some data to like. You know, if, if if you look at the sort of uh, there is a strong correlation, and this is around the world between you know fina- uh, financial wealth is very correlated, as you can imagine, with physical uh, health, but also with mental health. There, there is you know no matter how you do it, therefore you could go each way. So you can actually understanding your financial uh, status, you can go that way. But so at the moment we have the data, the technology, and the models to do. For example, uh, even in things like mental health, uh, the, the, the top KPI is suicide, of course. We could actually reduce this quite a lot, uh, which is quite sad. But the problem is because of the regulations, the way everything is set up, is, is an, 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 you know, you cannot do that. Or sometimes, and these people know, the changing behavior of people is very difficult. As the government now is looking with it, you know, we have pretty much in every country in the West a problem with obesity. It's very hard to to change behavior, and, and people are, you know, which are might be linked to certain things, and you can't just change it. So I think all these things, uh, yeah. One thing 
the data is is uh, is the, the future. There is a lot of things we can do, but then, uh, which is also going back to the point of uh, AI and the barriers. Or for me, the main thing is you really need to understand how everything fits together, the regulation, the different organization within the company, and make sure you talk the same language. Because that's also, you know, going back to the one of the first questions on the why projects fail or. For me, is the communications. Technical things don't really speak the same language as the business and operations people, meaning they all speak English or whatever the country they are, but actually they're not, you know, when they, uh, and this is, I've seen this so many cases. And, and every, you know, if I have to give one advice to companies, please make sure you break that barrier, the sort of technical or science and the, the business one, because if you do, that will pay, pay you off massively. If you don't, you keep having these uh, problems. So much to, to cover in so little time, and we're, we're coming up close to, to the hour. Uh, I think that's a great uh, kind of final note to, to end on, Javier. Uh, really, really uh, great insight from you, as ever, with your wealth of experience, uh, not just in the UK, but uh, around the world on, on this topic. And Paul, as ever, you know, whenever you uh, uh, speak, your, your insight is uh, there's always something new to learn from you. Uh, and great. I'd like to say how much I enjoyed this too. And uh, it only sends us down more paths to explore more uh, more avenues. Thank you very much. And for me as well. So thank you very much for inviting me. Great conversation, great insights of Budyoth. Really good questions, Dan, and great insights. So thank you very much. Really grateful I could be here today. Thanks for joining us for that amazing conversation. And remember to subscribe so you don't miss any of these future leaders talking about the changes in the credit and collections business. And also, why not drop into webio.com and see what we're doing these days.